Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 450. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 450 you're listening to. My guest today is friend, mentor, all-around badass, Vance Powell, seven-time Grammy Award-winning producer, engineer, and mixer, whose list of credits includes, of course, the great Chris Stapleton, L. King, the Tours, the Dead Weather, the White Stripes, Arctic Monkeys. Whew, he's got a lot here. <laughs> Wolf Mother, yeah, it just goes on and on and on. Vance is back. Yeah, he's uh, been on the show numerous times over the years, and I asked him to come back for this milestone episode. 450, that's pretty, that's milestone-ish, I think. Super excited to have him back. We're going to talk about some random stuff. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, Happy that you're here. 450, raise your coffee cups. Yeah, clank. Clank. There we go. (laughs) Not much more to say than that. 450 episodes, Vance Pal. It's all good. Looking forward to it. Vance Pal coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's reflect on 450 episodes. 450 episodes. That's a lot of talking. That's a lot of listening on your part. I appreciate it. Clearly, there'd be no show if you all didn't listen. But as time goes along, you know, it becomes a body of work that when I'm long gone and you all are here listening or other people are here listening, I think it's going to be pretty fascinating. It's going to be a little, I don't know, is anthropological the right word? Uh, It'll be great. Documentation of some great people, some that are no longer with us, but we have these conversations here documented and I, I think that that's great. I'm actively trying to figure out the smartest way to make it so that, you know, obviously, you know, if I die and go, uh, we've got some sense of continuity of a plan to make sure that these are available. I don't know if that's like the internet archive or I don't know. If you all have ideas, let me know. I'm going to, I'm going to probably reach out to, um, former WCA guest, Jessica Thompson and get her opinion. Cause I value her thoughts on, on the matter and she'll have some ideas. And if you've got ideas, please email me, Matt at workingclassaudio.com. Cause you know, that day will come when I will not be here and these episodes will, and I uh, want people to continue to enjoy them. So a couple thoughts for you. A, if you ever got an idea about something you want to try, just do it because that's what this was about when I started it. It's opened a lot of doors, as I've indicated in, in past rants where I get to these milestone episodes and kind of reflect back. Literally, if you if you have a crazy idea, or you, whether you think it's crazy or not, if you've got an idea, don't let uh, indecision, don't let paralysis by committee hold you up. Don't ask all your friends, just go do it, right? I've talked about that in a rant before uh, about stuff. Yeah, get out there and make stuff happen. I know that as audio professionals, we have to diversify a bit. And I'm sure you've seen, I'm diversifying with some audio courses or, or video and audio courses, because you know what? We gotta pay the bills at the end of the day, folks, right? There's art, but 
But if we can't get paid for what we do, if we can't survive, there's only so much time you can devote to it, right? When it comes to the game of audio, if you got some expansive concepts you want to try with getting out there and, and whether it's doing, you know, courses like I'm doing or whether it's trying some, you know, new ideas with your studio or some other method of working with artists where everybody benefits, try it. Just go for it. On the, on the topic of doors opening, the, the door that is open probably the most for me on this podcast is the relationship door. I have become friends with people that I didn't know about before. And, you know, Lid Shaw, you know, Lidge and I from Recording Studio Rockstars, Lidge and I have become great friends over the years. Uh, today, case in point, I'm going to drive up to Napa and head over to the Blue Note Jazz Festival to meet Alan Evans, former WCA guest Alan Evans. He's going to be playing with his band Soul Live. We're going to meet for the first time. We've talked a number of times over the years, stayed in touch, talked on the phone, texted. I've interviewed him a couple times. You know, that's the great thing about doing stuff like this. When you consciously reach out to the world, uh, great things can come. So I didn't get in this to, to, to make money, although the podcast does support itself, uh, which is great because that way I don't have to pay for it. It pays for itself and that's awesome. But I got into it for reasons other than money. And I'm glad I did. Although I will say this, that, you know, we're, we're next year is going to be 10 years that have been at this September of 2024 will be the 10 year mark. 10 years ago, my mind was just so focused on audio itself. And what I failed to realize, I think 10 years ago was it's much bigger than that. It's much more holistic than that. It's much more broad than that. It's audio is the component of a bigger picture idea. And also, it's gotten me to have a deeper appreciation, obviously, for business and money and the interaction of business and money and art and how to try to f navigate that. And it's I think it's 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 broadened my thoughts and ideas on what is possible. And it's also given me great ideas to inspire some of the artists that I work with to get them to think outside the traditional way of doing records you know i i know i work with a lot of artists that are stuck in like the 80s and 90s way of doing things or early 2000s for that matter and, and i've had some great conversations where i've been able to say hey what about this if we think outside the box and we think outside the lines and we try to come up with a different plan and that's fun to be able to you know take this viewpoint that i have developed over the last 10 years and really inspire some people to go and run with some ideas you know, I don't know, I don't have to be involved and I don't have to always be, you know, uh, on the forefront of that or getting paid for that. But it's great to really like sit down with somebody and go, have you thought about this? I think in conclusion to this rant, try to not be myopic in what we're doing. Try to think bigger. Try to think not just about yourself. Try to think about others and how you can help and inspire others and try to do this audio thing, use it as a tool to try to accomplish something bigger. It's not all about the geekery of audio. While the geekery of audio has its place and its time and its importance, it's not really about that at the end of the day. It's about the communication, it's about the message. As you listen to this, think back. This is an MP3 that you've been listening to for almost 10 years now. And when you listen to it, do you like sweat that it's an MP3? No, you're, you're listening to the message. You're listening to the great ideas my guests have brought to the table to you. 
So once again, it's about the message. It's not about all the geekery. It's not all about the gear. Although I do love the gear, <laughs> just like you. That's fun. But yeah, be thinking about bigger messages, bigger ideas, inspiration for the people you work with in all the different industries that audio is utilized. And yeah, raising my coffee cup to you. Cheers for 450 episodes. I was almost going to say 450 years, 450 episodes. Cheers to that. Thank you all so much. Let's continue it on. Let's keep it going. And oh my God, man, shut up. Let's get on with this interview. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I've used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Damn straight, let's get to it. Vance Powell here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Vance, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Matt. How's it going? It's going pretty good. I was going back through the um, 
past episodes. You first appeared in 2014 on episode seven, 007. Mm -hmm. Uh, You and I met once or twice at NAMM, and we did some short stints there, but then you had another dedicated episode. Episode 250 in 2019 was the last one you were on. Yeah, you you haven't been loving on me for a while. (laughs) I got to spread the love out over time. Every 200 episodes, I see. I guess that's what it is. I guess that's what it is. We'll we'll get 200 episodes in. Yeah, about every five years. Just come along. Just come back around. Good to see you. Um, That last time we were on, I will never forget, we were there in your control room, and Mm -hmm. Chris Athens was in the back, Mm -hmm. and then we went to your house. Chris wasn't feeling good. No, I wasn't feeling very good. We swam, and then Chris and I both went to the airport. And yep. he just seemed like he. we ate at some fast food place. He didn't feel good after the fast food place. Yeah, we ate at this restaurant here in town called Hugh Babies. And it is an awesome, fat-inspired burger. And I think that the whole Nam weekend of partying and frivolity there in 2019, back before the world changed, I think it kind of got to him a little bit. So... Yeah, yeah. He, he wasn't feeling very good. And that was a bummer. But he felt better later. Yeah. For the listeners, you know, obviously for the backstory, go back to 007, check out 250. Yeah. At this point, you've had some pretty major success. That persistence of just going through the good times, going through the bad times, and sticking with it. And I'm curious to hear your perspective on how you've approached it over the last several years how even though you may get a Grammy, I think you were telling me, you know, the next day I was like spraying shit, dog shit. No, it was that morning. My first Grammy, I got the call from the band. They were at the Grammys, you know? Yeah. And they said, well, hey, you're a Grammy award-winning engineer. Whatever you're doing right now, remember it. I'm like, well, I'm spraying dog shit off my porch. Right. And the reality is, is that awards, awards feel great at the moment. They definitely do. And Awards are something that you can stick in your proverbial cap, your feather in your proverbial cap, but there are upsides to it. It's a marketing device. You mm-hmm. know, Grammy Award winning engineer, oh, he did this record. The bigger thing is not so much the Grammy Awards or however many, whatever, none of that matters, is okay, you did this record and I love that record. And that's the deal. It really comes down to that. If you do a record that people like, people will follow you. It doesn't matter if it was a win, a Grammy winner or not. Some of the best records I've ever, that I love by people that, that I care about weren't Grammy winners. And some of them weren't even big sellers. So those are the people that inspire me. So the awards aren't a big thing. It's easy to say that too, if you have won an award. Right. It's easy right. to say there's, it, they're right. not a big thing. It is a big thing. It is awesome to be recognized by your peers for your work. It's really great. I think that if your goal is to win a Grammy, your goal is misguided. Your goal is not to win a Grammy. Your goal is is to make something so great it can't do anything but win. And then it'll probably lose. But, you know, because, you know, a lot of times the good stuff loses. I'm going to be sour and say that Jack White's Blunderbuss lost to Mumford and Sons. Now, a lot of people love that Mumford and Sons record, but Blunderbuss was a really great record and it was worthy of a of an album of the year nomination, you know? It was worthy of it. It was great. And there was a couple other bands on that list and they made good records too, but but Mumford and Sons, Mumford and Sons just sold a lot. 
I mean, I don't know. Can you remember any songs off that second Mumford & Sons record? Oh, I can't name one Mumford & Sons song. I don't want to sound like I'm running down Mumford & Sons. I'm not. They made a good record. But in the Grammy categories where everybody votes, it becomes a popularity contest. And mm-hmm. you had a lot of rock people really love that Blunderbuss record. And Jack, he did a no-limiting thing on the master. The master is as we recorded it. It's a basically a kind of an old school level, not blasted. So that was a that was sort of a deal. And it still made it to album of the year. And I th- I think all of those things are but it didn't win. Traveler didn't beat Taylor Swift. Okay. I get that to some degree. Beyonce's lemonade didn't beat Adele. That's a little weird one for me. But you know, is what it is. That's how it goes. I'm sure that you've had your doubts over the years where you're doing stuff. And you're like, oh my God, this is frustrating. Mm-hmm. You persist, you stay in it, you don't quit. I think that one of my faults, I'd like to say that I'm going to therapy to find these things, but it's not. I'm just getting old and figuring it out, <laughs> is that I often find myself in gig jealousy. Mm. I'm jealous of other people's work. In other words, I'm jealous that so-and-so's doing this record. You yeah. know what I mean? And jealousy is an ugly feeling, sort of, because it can make you not like people for no reason. I have always struggled with that a little bit. It's easy for me to look at my path and see that I've got records that other people are going to be jealous of. I totally get that. I know of a bunch of records that I didn't get that I really wished I would have got. And I've known gigs that I lost that other people got that I just have to sort of fight my way through the jealousy part and try to still be cool about it. I have clients that I've, multi-year clients that have gone to other people. I know this happens because that's just how our business is. But it doesn't mean I'm not a little sore about it. You know what I mean? Sure. As It's not just me. I mean, I... Long, long, many, many years ago, I I mixed a record that had gone through some troubled... uh, I didn't have anything to do with the production. It had gone through some troubled production. The record had been mixed twice, as I understand it, or at least once, by the uh, producer and the engineer, who is a well-known guy. They're both well-known people. And the record came to me, and I was like, oh, yeah, man, this is awesome. I'll mix it. And I mixed the record, and the record was a hit. One of the singles was literally like the whole summer of 2015. It was like the single of 2015. And so later that year, or I guess in Nam the next year, I was talking to one of my friends there, and obviously I'm being obtuse here. And I realized that the engineer who worked on the record, he was also talking to him. And so I said, hi. I said, hey, how are you doing? And uh, he literally turned around and walked away. Wow. And I thought to myself, that guy will hate me forever for something that I had nothing to do with. And I just, was, I just have to remember that and not be that guy. So it just kind of is what it is. I've been struggling the last, <laughs> this is what's funny, I don't have any reason to be doing this, but I've always been struggling for the last five or six years thinking, man, I wish I wish I was getting this cool rock band gig or mm-hmm. this cool blues act or this, whatever that thing is that we think is 
this level up. And I finally just relatively recently had to just realize and look around and be like, you know, man, you get to make some good records. You make a bunch of records that are cool indie records that people like, and your studio's paid for. And you've got to do some good work to keep doing it. But I'm going to turn 59 here next month. So I'm not a young spring chicken and I'm not a guy who can go and do a lot of these super cool bands that have a thousand bucks for their record. You know what I mean? <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> or 5,000 bucks for their record or even 10,000 bucks for their record. It's really, really hard for me to go, okay, cool. I'm going to set aside the amount of time I want to do this record for that amount of money. I just can't. It's not that I can say, oh, I'd rather not work because that's not the deal. It's just, I'm always kind of busy. So you have to prioritize. Yeah. And every now and then, every now and then, I will do a record for low budget and we'll just work out like a back end deal. And a couple times I've made my money back. Like my time equals money back. And most of the time I don't. But yeah. I had a really great time making the record and I'm proud of it. So what else is there? Yeah. I, I mean, you and I both know a ton of people, you interview a ton of people who make records all the time, who are on the charts and this and that and all that. And that is a great feeling to have something on the charts and have writers write about it and people go on and on about it. It's a great feeling. But the fact of the matter is, man, you know, if you're in Des Moines and you have a studio in Des Moines and you're rocking some bands from Lincoln or from Omaha over there in Des Moines, and those bands like what you do and you like what you do, you win. Make some money, make a record, do your thing. And sometimes those bands turn into bands that are very cool. I don't know if I've ever asked you this. Have you ever wanted to quit? Oh, man, oh, man. Have oh, you ever man. just said, fuck this, this is just not working out to my liking? I actually never have. Mm. There's multiple reasons for it. One, I have an unnatural fear of failure. I don't know why that is, but I'm very fearful of failure. I don't play games because I'm not a good loser. My wife is always like, you're a terrible loser. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So quitting would probably equate to failure. I would just keep probably plugging at it. But the reality is that I'm 59. You will be 59. I'll be, will be, yeah, next month. And, you know, I toured for 20 years. Mm -hmm. I've listened to loud rock music for another 20 years here, although I do mix quite quiet. I think like everything, like all fresh produce, it has an uh, expiration date. <laughs> so, I mean, there may be, there may come a time where my time of making records, I don't think it'll ever really be over until, you know, until I just can't literally hear what is going on, obviously, or hear what you're saying to me. And, you know, knock on wood, that's later than sooner. And I do protect my ears. I have earplugs in my pocket all the time. I have them in my pocket right now. I would probably try to go into teaching because I have a lot of stupid knowledge stuck up in this head mm -hmm. from 20 years of touring and 22 years of making records and running studios and building studios and building studios right, building studios wrong, everything, all that stuff. Consulting, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I could definitely go into that. 
today. It just takes a lot of time. And I actually even was talking to a friend of mine about consulting on a really, really, really cool project in a really wacky part of the world. And the more I think about it, I don't know that I'm ready for that yet. I don't know. Maybe. Let's put it this way. If the money was right, I'd be ready for it for a while. You yeah. know what I mean? Because we're not stupid here. I want to change topics on you a bit. You know, you and I were having a conversation the other day. We were talking about the the crux of it was like getting along with people. And working in the world of music, there's a lot of different personalities from the artists to the management, to the producers, to the, the assistants, everybody. How do you maintain getting along and trying to keep your eye on the ball? Because it can be a real challenge. Well, first of all, the best way to get along with everybody is to be in charge. (laughs) I know that's funny. (laughs) But but if you can't be in charge, the best thing to do is just try, treat everybody as you would want to be treated. I know that's some sort of biblical shit, but that's not really what I'm getting at. In other words, like I have for years had assistants. A lot Mm -hmm. of people don't work with assistants. I have had an assistant since 2008. 2006, 2007, something like that. Mm-hmm. Way back there, right? I am responsible for him or her. I haven't had a female assistant except for Gina Johnson. She's not really my assistant. She's sort of a co-creator on the Stapleton Records or co-engineer there. But if my assistant screws up, I screwed up. So I will always take the blame for that person. It's my responsibility. Mm-hmm. It's always my responsibility. When I was on the road and I was the production manager, if I was the production manager and the lighting guy screwed up, I'm the one who had to go to the artist and say, hey, there's no follow spots today because the lighting guy, sorry, that didn't get advanced. That's on me. Even though it wasn't on me, it was on me. There's a backstory there, but it doesn't matter. You know, and as a person on the road working for Claire Brothers, as I did, you had a commitment to Claire, you had a commitment to the artist, to both. You're sort of walking the line there. If some Claire gear didn't work, I'm the guy who had to take the responsibility for it because mm-hmm. I was the Claire guy. If I, as the front of house engineer, when the Claire gear broke, well, guess what? It's my fault because the Claire gear broke and I'm the front of house guy. So it's one of those things. So I don't have any problem really taking the blame. Where it gets weird is when you're sort of working with a producer or an artist and as the engineer, your job is to the producer. You work for them. And so you just have to kind of take it and hope that if something goes wrong, they take the blame because that's their job. But sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. You know, it's just kind of one of those things. And you just have to do your best to put it away. I'm not very good at it. I am, in my 59 years now, have got to a point where I kind of don't really put up with it. I'm not calling anybody out exactly or anything like that, but I just don't put up with it, which means (laughs) I don't work for anybody else, pretty much. People call me all the time. I I had a good friend talk to me the other day and he was like, I'd love to come over and I want to like come to your studio and like record some drums on some tracks I'm producing and, you know, have you engineer. And I go, I just don't do that. Sorry. Go to Sound Emporium, but I don't do it. Hmm. And he's like, well, how come? But I mean, you're an engineer, you do that. 
I go, yeah, I do. But I've, I, I did it forever. I did it. I went and made records for other people forever. And you know what? At the end of the day, there was no upside for it for me other than just doing the work. I have work. Yeah. I can do the work here. I can stay busy. I don't have to figure out time in my schedule to set up a drum kit, set up all the mics, do all the thing, do all the patching, have you come in and record and want to record for a half day to record four hours of drums in my room, right? And then take the tracks out of here and go produce the record and mix the record elsewhere or mix the record yourself. I think this is just me getting older and getting to the point of being like, I don't, it's not that I don't want to work for any, anybody else, because obviously I do. I mean, I'll be stable in records. I'm the engineer mixer. But um, I just don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. I'd rather be more of a creative part of it. And for better or for worse, I used to get a lot of people who would hire me sort of to do my thing and then would be producing the record. And then they would take the tracks and go to their place and put a bunch of overdubs on it and then mix it themselves. And it's like, okay, well, but you guys called me for a reason. There's a lot of guys around here who can record drums and often better than me. Would you rather be producing? Yeah, I mean, that's what I've been doing yeah. for the last 10 years. Sounds like all that that kind of like early stage, hey, come and record drums at my studio kind of bullshit for a half a day, like, you put your time into doing that stuff and you're beyond that it's at well, this there's, point. There's just tons of people here in town, man, who A, do it all the time. B, are probably better at it than me, mm -hmm. to be honest with you. And C, that's their path. Why do I need to be in their path? I don't need to be in their path. So basically what came down is a few years back, I just started pricing myself out of that. And I probably lost a few really cool gigs because of it. I know of a few because I just didn't want to be that guy. And it wasn't exactly even maybe like just doing drums or whatever. Maybe it was, you know, hey, come and record this record. And I didn't have full control of it. And so there's always, there's always something when you're not the, the person in charge. Does this go back to your concern about failing? Do you not want it to sonically fail? If you're if you're out of control, then other people are making sonic decisions. Yep. I just, at some point, had a couple records that I recorded and mixed that I was not in control of the final product, and I just am not happy with it. And I have to live with it. Yeah. And that is probably the deal. Not every record I've ever done that I've had full control over... I love the outcome. I'll just be honest with you. I did a clutch record a couple of years ago. It was my first record with the guys. They're very nice guys. They're great people. They're awesome. And I got to be honest with you. I just kind of, I kind of missed the boat when it came to mixing it. And that, that happens. It, it happens. The problem is, is that I really love the band and I, I love the guys. And I had hoped to have a, a little bit of a continuing relationship with them and uh, i made a record that 60 percent of the clutch fans hate and they went on and they went to tom dalgetty who's an amazing mixer engineer and that was the end of that no hard feelings i totally get it yeah but i mean i'll be honest with you it's not my best work the bummer is that if i just listen to the rough mix it's really fucking cool sounding 
Yeah. I just got my head inside it too far. But but moving forward for yourself, it just seems like you've reached a point where you're like, okay, to have the outcome of success that I expect, meaning you expect in a record, you need to kind of be at the helm controlling the sonic outcome to feel good about it. I feel like, yeah, that's how everybody feels. That's this everybody's story. Yeah. Every recording engineer on the planet says, if I record this and mix it, it's going to sound better than if anybody else. And I've experimented with sending people things that I recorded to have mixed. And sometimes it's really great. I sent a song to our good friend Chris Shaw to mix, and he fucking killed it. Now, here's the funny part. Did I end up using it on the record? I didn't. And the reason is we changed the arrangement, a few things. And what Chris's mix did, because I mean, I didn't get his files or anything. He just sent me the mix, just a mix, is it informed a couple really important things on the song structure, what was important and what wasn't so important. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So... I could have sent it back to him and had a, had him remix it. We didn't have the money. I was paying for this record basically out of pocket. Yep. This is one of those records I was paying for myself. And I was like, look, I'm just going to take a swipe of this and see if I can not beat it, if I can get close. And I think that what we did was, after the changes we made, it was more informed decision by how Chris mixed it, how we mixed it. Right. You know what I mean? How we did it again. So I was happy to pay him to do it, and he did a great job, and I love him. He's the smartest fucker on the planet. He's a really, really sharp, smart dude. Him and yeah. him and Sheps together are just like, they're crazy <laughs> with their sound flow thing and all that. Oh, my God. I, I can't even get that thing to work. I don't even know how to do it. <laughs> I don't even know what commands are on this keyboard, and I've been doing it for 20 years. Right, right. But I, I mean, I'm just in awe of how his records sound, and it's just it's one of those things. Shifting topics, I want to talk about something that you and I talked about the other day, diversification, which is... Diversification! I know, it sounds like a, a, a schoolhouse Come on, rock. How about thing. this? Come on over to Diversification Station. We'll <laughs> teach you all kinds of other things. Schoolhouse Rock will teach you how to do it. It's Diversification Nation. That's right. So, you were out in the Bay Area, and unfortunately, we didn't get to meet up because you had some technical mess-ups with something, but you have been out on the road with Fish doing this live broadcast thing, yeah. right? How this all came about. A few years back, Fish's manager, Patrick Jordan, hit me up because Trey, the guitar player, wanted to do a record and he kind of wanted to record it live. This happens to be something I'm really good at from Stapleton and Jack White. Now, this is not a live recording this is live in the studio. Right. It's a very Nashville way of recording. Everybody gets in the room and re-record the record. Boom, done. But that's what he wanted to do. That's not how he'd been doing things. So we got together and we made this record called Ghost of the Forest. It's really cool. It doesn't sound like any Fish record. It's, it's a pretty cool record. But the Fish folks can definitely dig into it because it's got things like 17-minute songs, <laughs> you know, things like that. <laughs> it's got things that they can get into, and it's got some cool playing. And basically, we recorded multiple takes. I picked the best pieces, pieced it together, and made a record. It's all recorded live, but 
it's all kind of like how the Beatles did it. Let's take the best pieces. Right. And some songs that were 11 minutes long became five-minute songs. I just cut out whole sections. Like, this song doesn't need to go on and on. This jam is cool, but are we just fluffing here? You know, things like that. And what Trey was great about that, it was awesome. So then that led to me doing the last Fish album called Sigma Oasis. Same situation. We all got in the barn. We recorded live, no headphones. Everybody playing live in the room. I had one little Genelec monitor kind of under tray, like a floor wedge that had his guitar in it because we put his guitar in, in like a tunnel of baffles. And then he had a little bit of vocal in it. And we just recorded the record that way. And then I say I did it. Actually, Michael Fahey, Mike did all the edits. He really made it awesome. Then we got back together, did some vocals, did a bunch of vocals. I did strings here. Paige did a bunch of keyboards in Vermont. Paige, Mike, and, and Fishman got together and sang a batch of background vocals. Once we got the lead vocals done, it was just this thing going on all around. And then, of course, I recorded the strings on the last day of February of 2020. All right? So then, Good of times. course— Yeah, so then I started this old 97s record, which right in the middle of it, the pandemic came down and we had to finish the entire record remotely, which was not very easy and and, and pretty tough, but we did it. Then I mixed the record. It came out. Fish fans loved it. And part of the reason they loved it is because I think, and this is me, just I don't know. I just think that records before, I think producers were trying to make rock records or singles, or hits. And Fish fans don't give a shit about any of that. They just want it to groove. They want it to have a vibe. And they want it to sort of be like their live show. Mm -hmm. So these were songs they had been playing for years that had been very popular in their app. They have an app that has stats and all that. It's a live streaming app called Live Fish. And you you can... Sign up and subscribe to Live Fish, and you can listen to every live show since 2007 or nine or something like that. Plus, all these old board tapes going all the way back into the 80s. Damn. Right? Yeah. And you can listen to them anytime you want, whatever. Plus, you can watch shows live. They have 17 HD cameras or something like that, tons of cameras, and they have this live stream of the show. And so they have hundreds and up to into many, many thousands of people a night buy the show at home. And if you buy the show, you can download it and you can watch it anytime you want. 4K video, you can download it, you own it, right? Pretty cool. So they had been going through some changes. It's a long story. The, the fish people will know all these pe- people, but I, I'm not going into it too much. But basically, Gary Brown, who's been there for an house engineer for a long time, had taken over mixing the live stream and front of house. And what was happening is when you serve two masters, you're you're kind of a slave to everybody, so to speak. You know, you can't really sit out in front of the PA and really get the low end right on the live stream if you're sitting in front of a PA. You can't really sit in a truck and mix the show and get all the low end and get all the balances right if you're in a truck. So they had done some console changes and all this stuff. And last year down in Cozumel, Cozumel, no, Cancun, he had set up in a 
in a room in this hotel next to where the show was and had mixed the show from there and it worked really well. And in the in the room was a hot tub. So <laughs> the recording became called The Hot Tub. So Trey, he just wanted Gary to basically do what Gary does really great, which is mix front house. So he they reached out to me if I'd be interested. And I had actually on the last tour logged into five or six or seven shows here at the studio and then literally text Gary. Gary was audio movering it to me and uh, I listened in and then they just started sending me the video link. So I was watching the video link and I'd be like, hey, maybe it needs a little more, maybe a little bit of this, maybe a little bit of that. And I thought it sounded really good. But the reality is, is when you're there, you can be creative. They want you to be creative. So they want to make that more record-like. Is that the good word? So I went down and did Cancun. I had no idea. Not I had no idea what I'm doing. I know what I'm mixing. I know how to mix. But the console is a Lavo MC36. This is a German broadcast desk, but it's also the desk of like Saturday Night Live and Kimmel and Fallon. And I know Fallon. I'm sure about Kimmel, but I know Fallon. The M3 trucks have these lava desks, so all the Grammys go through these lava desks. They are beasts. And if anybody here in the studio world thinks that the live guys aren't technical, uh, they don't know what the fuck they're doing. Because they have a huge Dante network, multi 10 gig fibers going all over the place. This console has a operating system that boots in three blade servers. It boots three iterations of each of the console running all in lockstep. It has two full consoles running in DSP at all time. I mean, it has Maddie, it has Ravenna, it has Dante, all the, all the things all the time. It's a uh, 209 mic pre's at uh, times two. They're all malted. So we have multiple sets of mic pre's. I'm recording about 150 tracks a night. And, wow. and we're recording at front of house and recording in the truck at the same time, simultaneous streams from the mic pre's. So we have redundancy. It's crazy. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. 
But there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to sampley.app or sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled sampley.app. Check it out. I want to interrupt you for a minute. Before Tom Petty's death, I went out to the Greek theater in Berkeley and met up with Robert Scoville. And we did an interview. He walked me through his rig, sat front of house for the whole show. And I was legitimately like, or seriously intimidated, like at the tech involved, just in the front of house for Tom Petty. I was blown away at what, what Robert was doing. And so to hear you say this, and, and, I, and I will 100% back you up and say, to me, the, the, the things that go down in front of house and, and live sound these days, it's on a whole nother level than the studio. It yeah. makes the studio seem not antiquated, but kind of simple in many respects. Oh, it's very simple. I mean, it's very, very, very simple. Our A1, Simon, I mean, he is running multiple Dante networks for all the speakers. He's running multiple Dante networks for the consoles, for the... Gary has two lavas in front of house. They're mirrored. They're exact copies of each other running in front of house. And then I have one in the truck, and then I have a virtual copy running all the time. All those fail over. They're all connected by 10 gigabit fiber. It's all audio over Ethernet, basically, but over fiber. I have a 1,000-foot fiber run coming to me. And then they have all the Ethernet going to all the speakers, to all the delays. There's 19 PA hangs for fish. It's it's crazy. And then the monitor engineer, he's using a Yamaha desk. He has his own console mixer and all that. He has a Ravage, I think that's what they call that. And, you know, he's been with those guys for 20-some years. Bruno, he's, he's a really great, great guy. All the crew are great. What an operation. Yeah, I think there's 68 crew, including truck and bus drivers, 15 semis. Well, I mean, just the, the thing about the app, I mean, that's unbelievable. Like, yeah, and this the, is a- the Live Fish app is pretty great. <laughs> pretty kooky. So this is kind of a little different than working on records with Chris Stapleton and, and Jack. No, it's White. totally different. It couldn't be any more different. But in the end, it's all about the mix. We did have a technical issue at Berkeley that was confounding. Um, And basically what happened is the console, it's a long story. I'm going to try my best to get this right. When we went to Cancun, we had an MC36 in the truck. That's a smaller console that has the DSP for the mixer built into it. The idea for the truck was to have the 56, which is a bigger one. That DSP lives on stage. So... I'm basically, I have a big mouse in front of me. Even though I do have audio in my truck, I have audio for inserts and all that stuff and uh, playback and monitoring. And really, the mixing is all being done on stage. They have a big rack called Bertha, monster thing with big UPSs and a bunch of Cisco switches. And I mean, it's crazy. These Dell, three Dell blade servers and blah, 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 blah. What happened in Berkeley was that Gary's console was trying to connect to my MC36, which, of course, was thousands of miles away 
elsewhere. And because it had not been taken out of the system. So there was this ghost console. And basically, it got itself into a frenzy and basically flooded my audio streams trying to find this console. And for some reason, it's funny, we, we rehearsed in Tacoma. We had a couple little issues that we, we thought were maybe boot order, right? The same issue, but it was just boot order. But we got it fixed. It was fine. It was working. Everything was great. When we got to Berkeley, one of the first things that happened is we had no internet. I know that shouldn't matter, but for some reason, the Berkeley ethernet line was like 100 feet too short or something. And so it ended up, we had to jump through. We had terrible fucking internet service in Berkeley. And that's where all these problems started. So, yeah, I just don't know. But Lavo flew a tech out. Sean, it was awesome. He came out. He's like, oh, hey, here's what's going on. Boom, boom, boom. Hold it. Let me, let me erase this. Okay, now erasing this is going to do this and this and this. And so we're going to erase these. And then that means we're going to have to reconnect all this. And we reconnected it and everything was perfect. So, yeah, we did have a one little disaster. And, of course, it just so happened that it was the greatest second set in Fish history that didn't go out live off my desk. It went out off the front house desk. So it and was still captured. It was still captured. And then the next day, I remixed it and uh, put it up. As, I spent the whole day, the third day we were there, remixing the show. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, yeah. Because that's when you we were going to yeah. meet. And I was and just like, yep. Yeah, you want to come up, sit in here and watch me, you know, mix three hours worth of music. So, yeah. Again, and then mix three more hours. Yeah. Matter of fact, I wasn't even, I didn't even do sound check that day because I was mixing. So. Yeah. It's a lot of work. I mean, it's, it's a lot of work. There's a lot of inputs. I mean, I have 20, uh, almost 24, I think it's 16 now, but I will have 24 audience mics and it's cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's different from what you normally do. Yep. And it keeps, keep, definitely keeps you on your toes. Yeah, that's definitely a fact. It's a challenge. Yeah. That's why I'm doing it. It's a little bit of diversification. Here's the things I like about it. It's a challenge. All right. I want to get my head around this lava desk. I want to get my head around that because I want to be able to know what I'm talking to about when, like if I go to a tonight show with Fallon and I'm talking to Lawrence, I'm like, hey, you know, so in your lava, are you, how are you, you know, blah, blah, blah. Or, or if I do with um, the guys in the M3 trucks at the Grammys, I now know how all that works. It's not like I'm clueless how they're doing this all. I know how it works. I know how the desk works because it's daunting. It's a very bizarre console in a very German way. You can hit a couple buttons and every fader on the console disappears. It'll just all go away because it's set up. You have six pages, basically banks, and each bank has two layers. And never at any one given time is all of the faders on all of the channels because I have a 72 fader. No. 56 fader console, right? So I have one set of faders, upper faders, just as my outputs. But I can hit a button and they all just go away. They're there. They just, it's kind of like when you used, when you had a Yukon device and you just scrolled off into nowhere. Right, you know right. I mean? You <laughs> uh -huh. just, you know, or a Huey, you're just like, oh, where'd all my faders go? Or if you accidentally hit the option on the side when you're trying to highlight a track in the track listing and they all just disappear. It's just like that. 
what I'm really curious about, so, and I'm not trying to cast any dispersions on any artist in, in Nashville, but I mean, obviously working with someone like Fish, who's completely outside of the system, we'll call mm-hmm. it, and they're their own entity, yep. that's very different from dealing with like an established Nashville-centric artist. Well, are you talking about Chris? Because he's, no, not, a, he's no, not a centrist artist. No, no, I'm talking just generically, not necessarily. Oh, you. yeah, like, like yeah. I don't do if, any of that work. I don't do any of that Nashville work. But if you were dealing with a Taylor Swift, like versus a Fish, it's like two very different worlds. Yeah, they wouldn't come to me. Right. They wouldn't come to me. I mean, I just I remember recording a record for Taylor Swift's label at the time, mm-hmm. and the A and R guy. <laughs> it's one of those weird deals. The A&R guy asked me about mixing the record. And his first thing was, how many number one country records have you mixed? And I said, none. And he goes, he goes well, that's why we're going to go with so-and-so. And I go, okay, cool. Oh. This is this, by the way, you know, a few years back, I'd won a Best Engineered Album Grammy. That didn't matter. I mean, I was a three-time winner at that point. So whatever. But what's funny is, at that given moment in time, the week after that, we mixed Traveler, which is the number one selling country record of the last 10 years. Yeah. That band I was mixing, you don't even know anything about. Now, part of the reason is because, I mean, they're very good. They're very good. I actually really like those guys. And I'm not saying they are, but I like them. But the label did the thing. We made the record and they sent it to the guy who mixes all the country stuff, who's very good. And he mixed it, and it was very mainstream. Yeah. I'm holding up two hands next to my face. Very mainstream. Right. Like down the street, right down the middle of the road. Cool. Would I have done that? No, I probably wouldn't have. That doesn't mean it would have been any bigger seller or whatever. But that mentality of how many number one records have have you mixed was the whole point why I was not mixing the record. So as it is, yeah, I've mixed a few number one country records. I think four, to be honest with you. Four singles. Chris's, I believe, had four number one singles. But do you think that they would hire you today? No. Not do you at think all. you're do you ever consider yourself just too rogue for that that city sometimes? Probably. Well, look, look, man, there's there's two lit worlds that live in Nashville. There's Music Row. And all that work. And I'm talking, you know, the Morgan Wallens, the Sam Hunt, the George Orline, which is no longer banned, the Luke Bryan, the Luke Combs, the Lukes, all the Lukes. All the you Lukes. Know, uh, you know what I mean? All <laughs> yeah. those guys. That world is not anything that I know. I only know one or two people in it. And strangely, like, like Reed Chippen, who's one of my greatest friends and a fantastic mixer, he does Chesney. And he does Dirks Bentley. Those are big country acts that he does. Chesney doesn't even really land in that world. You know what I mean? He's kind of even above and outside it. Yeah. And Dirks, Dirks is doing great. He's doing awesome. And he's kind of not outside that world a bit. But that mainstream country thing, that country music radio thing that's happening there, it's always been Music Row. It's always been those people. And it's always this group of people that make records. For a long time, it was Dan Huff and Jeff Balding and, well, there's a whole bunch of them, whatever. Those guys yeah. are great, by the way. Balding is one of the best engineers on the planet. And Dan Huff, I love him. He's a sweet guy. 
Dan Huff's never going to call me to mix a record. He says, not. You know why? Because I don't have any agency. I hate that word, but I don't have any agency in that world, regardless of what you talk about with Chris. Right. Because Chris is an anomaly. Chris, I think a lot of people in Nashville, they understand he's the best singer in Nashville, period. He's one of the best songwriters in Nashville, period. He also is not malleable. He is not. He is, he is the strongest steel. He is going to do what he does, period, period. And you know who else does that that you've worked with? Jack. Yeah, absolutely. There's, a, there's definitely a similarity there. Well, I think, and, they, and they are, they're very respectful of each other. I mean, the, the thing with Chris is Chris is going to do what Chris does. I mean, I can't speak for him, but I see from the outside, he's going to do what he does, and he's going to do his thing, and that's it. Period. Do you think you're attracted to working with artists like that? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I'm always attracted to anybody who has a vision and is willing to stand up for said vision. Yeah. Absolutely. And do you think that they're attracted to you because you kind of bring something similar to the table? I don't know. Why do Jack and Chris bring you on? Well... Jack brought me on. <laughs> Jack Jack brought me on because I was fast. I think we had worked together a little bit, and we had a he has a good sense of humor, and I have a pretty good sense of humor. We could joke back and forth, and I worked really fast. I mean, to be honest with you, I, I you know I, I mean I knew what I was doing, and I was worked pretty fast. The other thing I never did with Jack is say no, we can't do that because we live in a awesome world where even in Jack White's world, working on two inch eight track. We had a track on the Wanda Jackson record that had this weird one minor chord in the entire song, right? And it was in the chorus, and it was just the strangest minor chord. When the band was tracking it, they couldn't figure out why it was there, so they took it out. They just played the major, because it worked. Well, when Wanda got in there, she was like, oh no, I can't sing that. I've sang this song most of my life. That's the wrong note. Hmm. So she just kept singing the minor, which of course was a huge fucking clam catastrophe, right? So Jack's like, what are we going to do? I go, well, I can fix it. He goes, you can? I go, yeah. He goes, do I want to know how? I go, no. He goes, all right, how long do you need? And I'm like, half a day. He goes, all right, I'll see you tomorrow. And you know, we cut this song live all in the room. And so what do you do? Well, you start taking things into Melodyne and figuring out what you can move a half step that doesn't fuck up everything else. And we moved the whole track in multiple places a half step. Even the room mics a half step. Unbelievable. Right? And it's for such it's it is it is one bar. But that one bar made that song go on the record. Now, I'm not going to tell you what song it is because people go try and find it. But it's this one bar. So what did that entail? Well, that entailed me driving over to the studio, getting my Pro Tools rig with Melodyne, bringing it over, putting the eight tracks into Pro Tools locked to time code, Melodyning the one note, and then punching in one bar in every chorus on every track. 
one at a time. Over the tape. So, yeah. How do you do time code on a one-inch eight-track? It has nine tracks. Oh. Yeah. It actually has nine tracks. It has, down at the very bottom, the size of a 24-track. There's a little track 24 at the bottom is time code. And all the other tracks are like a quarter-inch wide. And then there's a track 23 guard band. I was going to ask, is there a guard band? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's the John French Mark II eight-track hit. Awesome. I think that's why Jack White. Chris is a little different deal. I had done Sturgill Simpson's first record with Dave, High Top Mountain, Mm -hmm. and Chris liked the way that record sounded. And so Dave was producing the record, and they called me. I came over. We started out, you know, we were going to do... I didn't know this until later, that they were only supposed to really do four songs, and we ended up doing 15, and that became Traveler. And I was just there. I just did it, and we did it, and everybody got... It was great. Did I know that record was going to be what it was? Sorta. Here's the weird part. We recorded two days, and then we had to leave for a day because the studio RCAA was booked for some event. So we went to the castle, which is this castle outside of Nashville. It's an old roadhouse, uh, Al Capone Roadhouse, actually. That was a restaurant for a while, and then it became a studio. We recorded two songs out there, and then we came back, recorded the rest of the record. The last song we recorded on that first recording was Tennessee Whiskey. And it was an after-dinner deal. It's, I mean, the, the story is, I mean, I'm sure there's multiple versions of it, but basically, I think I came in from the bathroom or whatever, and they were playing it. And we had a track called Jams, and I said, hit record, and they recorded it. And then I think either Dave was in the room or Dave was there or whatever. I can't remember exactly. And so we played it two more times, and then that's Tennessee Whiskey. That was it. But it was a cover. So it's a George Jones song. Dean Dillon wrote it. The original's in 4-4. It doesn't sound anything like Chris's. They sort of had this 6-8 or 3-4, 3-4, I think, might as well go blind kind of vibe that they put over it. Mm-hmm. And that and that was it. So the next week, Dave and I went and recorded this uh, band at another studio. And uh, at one point, while we were working on it, this band had background singers. And Kristen Rogers, who's a good friend of mine and friend of, she's one of the best, was in that group. She was the leader of the singers. And we played Tennessee Whiskey. And when he went for that, that run where he goes, ah, they literally stood up and freaked out. And they're like, stop fucking play that again. We played it again. They're like, oh my God. Can you play the whole song? We played the whole song again. And it was like, oh, hmm. Note to self, this hits people. And then they were like, we want to hear more. So we played one more song or two. And then the band kind of came in. It was, you know, we had to kind of put it all away. So that was the first time I sort of knew that was something. And then, so here in Nashville, they have these like record release parties that are like private they're for the label and mm-hmm. basically the artist says hey i want to play this record for the label and so the label can get excited about it and you know but basically the deal is it's it's at five o'clock on fridays or five o'clock in the afternoon the, the label people come over they have free drinks and food they basically have happy hour they listen to a record they're going to work on in three months and then they go home basically the deal. Most of the times, a lot of people talking between each other and then the song gets quiet and they get quiet between the song stops and the artist talks about the song and blah, blah, blah. And it can be kind of tiresome. 
But this one wasn't that way. We played it, and the third song on the record was the song called Daddy Doesn't Pray Anymore. And at the end of it, I could actually hear people sobbing, crying. And I thought, wow, these are record label people. And at the end of the record, we played 14 of the 15 songs we recorded. I think 12 made the record. A girl said, can we hear that again? This is a record they didn't even know was coming to them, by the way. And we played it again. People stayed and hung out. and So that was the second time I knew something was up with that. And then the third was Ryan Hewitt and I, Mike Fahey and I, and Diana, my wife, went to see Chris at the Cannery Ballroom here in town, which holds like 700 people. This is four days after the record came out because, you know, the record used to come out on Tuesdays. So Traveler came out on Tuesday. This is Friday night. The first song they played was Traveler. And there was a dude behind me and a dude to the left of me singing the lyrics as loud as they could in Nashville. Now, let me tell you, man, Nashville people don't give shit about stuff like this. They just don't. They stand with their arms crossed and it's the whole, you know, impress me, motherfucker, sort mm-hmm. of thing. Because, you know, look, we've got great musicians, we've got play- great players, we've got great talent. It's all around us all the time. It's hard to get impressed by just some dude and his little three-piece band up there, guitar, bass, and drums, and, and his wife singing, you know what I mean? And the dude playing guitar, and man, he killed it. And people just walked out of there like, holy shit. And so, you know, and then, of course, the whole thing blew up at the CMAs. And, but there were all these, like, early echoes of what that record was going to be. And, you know, and I, I have loved every single minute of making records with Chris. Your story of Can We Hear It Again is very similar to Butch Vig talking about playing the cassette mixes of Nevermind, Nevermind. at a yeah. barbecue that I think the Smashing Pumpkins were at, and everybody was like, play it again. Yeah. That's when you know. Yeah, that's exactly when you know. Do you ever watch um, on YouTube, there's a thing that I'm obsessed with watching. It's people's reactions to songs they've they've never heard. and. <laughs> I have seen some of those. Oh, my God. I love watching those. Just the behavior of people reacting to something that you know and have loved and already gone through. And then you see them going through it, and it just lights me up. I love I it. love the one, the dude, the rapper guy listening to Led Zeppelin. <laughs> I like that one. That was a pretty good one. There's some, there's some pretty great ones out there. I mean, I don't, I don't, that YouTube is a rabbit hole that I find myself in when I can't sleep. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what I use it for. So, okay, shifting gears. We're almost out of time here. We're never almost out of time. I know, but you know, there's only so much we can squeeze into an episode here. And then I got to wait 200 more episodes to bring you back. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, take you that long to edit this long thing. (laughs) No shit. We talked a little bit about you being in control and stuff. And By the way, for better or worse. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But knowing what you know now and where you're at, you're about to be 59. What do you plan on or foresee for the next five to 10 years? Will you be in this space? Will you be working the same kind of music? Are you looking at other types of music, different roles? playing more producer role than anything? Is that Well, I mean, that's pretty much I mean, I pretty much don't record anybody now unless I'm producing it. So so that's kind of the truth. I mean, other than Chris, again, it's sort of my one standout other client. Although I'll mix stuff, obviously. I do ton. I mean, I mix tons of stuff. Here's the deal. Am I going to be here? Yeah, I'm going to be here because I can't even conceptualize the concept of building another studio. 
is this studio everything I want it to be? No. I don't particularly love my live room. My control room has, even though it's way better now, it still has its own issues. Is this SSL, the console of my dreams? I have put so much money into it with all the mods and repairs. We just recapped the whole thing. We re-switched most of it. Just did this crazy SSL mod called the Code Hanger mod. We completely reverse engineered the Code Hanger mod, which is pretty undocumented. We just did that. That took five weeks. My tech, it took five weeks of his, of his time to do it. I put, so, I put so much money into it. I don't know if I'll ever get my money back. Is it the console of my dreams? No, man. I'd love to have a big fucking API. It'd be great. All those things, though, sort of fit into this world of what do I want to do next? What do I want to do? I love making records. If I was to complain about anything in my life is that I wish somebody would want to hire me to do like some really cool art rock or goth rock or, or electronica or something that's outside what people think that I do because my musical tastes are very, very wide and bizarre. So very bizarre to be honest with you. So I would love nothing more than to have people want to hire me to do something they don't think that I'm able to do. I don't know. Maybe that's whatever. By the same token, I have no desire to retire or anything like that. No. And the main reason is because I'm, I'm qualified to be a greeter at Walmart, maybe, yeah. or drop fries at McDonald's. And I've got oily skin already, so that might not be such a good plan. <laughs> So what do I want to do when I grow up, you know? I really just want to keep making records, and I want to just keep doing this, and I want to try my best to be a better husband and father to my, my daughter, who's 39. And I want to try to die and I to, you know, and tea a bit to see the world a little bit more and, you know, just try to find a balance between working and doing things that don't feel like work, but are. I'd love to be able to get paid to do something that I really love doing, which is what I do every day. You know yeah, what I mean? I mean, you're already that's doing what I'm, that. That's what I'm saying. Is yeah. I, I wish I would have bought Bitcoin at a dollar. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. You know? But, I mean, I know people who did. Right. But to, if, if I recall correctly, you bought Apple at 13. I bought Apple at 100. Oh. And then it and then it it split a couple of times all the way up to seven hundred. So yes. But I mean that money's all gone. I put it in the roof and the floor and the stupid carpet that I hate. You know what I mean? And acoustic yeah. paneling and treatment and yeah, that money's all gone. Yeah, I just can't I can't worry about all that, you know. Would you ever, ever consider a move out of Nashville? Yeah, of course. Where would you go? Portugal, maybe. Oh. No, I don't know. I just say that. That's my go-to joke. Portugal has a bunch of really nice things. It has an ocean. It has people speaking Portuguese, which is a beautiful language that I don't know. Yeah. It has an EU passport, which is pretty cool. And it's a very progressive society, seemingly. Yeah. Uh, but it has all kinds of problems, you know. Sure. Um, the thing is, the democratization of the internet and the ability for us to do cool things like audio movers and... Stuff like that means I don't exactly have to be here in Nashville. Why I want to stay in Nashville is because I'm in the middle of making a record. Let's say this has happened and I need a B-Bender Telecaster. 
Now, I can either try to find one online and pay four or five grand for a B-Bender Telecaster, or I can walk over next door to my good friend Paul Moak and say, hey, man, can I borrow your B-Bender for a couple of minutes? And he's like, yeah, sure. We get the B-Bender and we do our session and then I take it back over to him. Or he can call me and be like, like, you know, one time he's like, hey, do you have a power supply for an SSL? I'm like, here you go. You know, put it on a cart, wheel it down the street or whatever. Whatever. I don't remember what it was. It was something that we I loaned him. But you know what I mean? That's the beauty of being here in Nashville is that I can literally call a guy and say, hey, can you come over and play bass on this track? And he'll just come over and play bass. Famous, super famous, like famous not as a bass player. But he's come over and replaced a couple of bass tracks for me before. Like ones that weren't played very well. And, you know, like, yeah, I'll go and play. He'll play. He'll, he'll learn the part. And he plays it just like they played it, but in time, <laughs> you know, because he's great. And, you know, it's, that's the nebulous thing about it. Also, five blocks away, a three and a half minute drive, if I drive relatively fast, five minute drive is Blackbird. I mean, I've literally drove over and been like, you know, to Richard Ely, who's the tech there, like, hey, do you have this 13 microfarad capacitor? Do you have one of these or whatever? Do you have a... 47k ohm resistor. You have two of them. Well, it's the resources of Nashville. You've put your time into Nashville, and it's just a place that's got everything you need to do. All the resources to make records, yep. players, gear, spaces, inspiration. I mean, if this has happened a couple times, a band has come to me, and they, you know the band is big. It's like six piece band. My room's relatively small, dude. So, you know, should we just go to Sound Emporium or Blackbird or should we just go over there and do it there? Yeah, let's just go and do it over there. Okay, cool. We're going to do it there. And if I lived in wherever it was. Portugal. You're not going to have, well, yeah. I mean, uh, for me, it's probably not ever going to be outside the country yet. Although I don't know. Yeah. We'll of course, see. there's always Los Angeles. Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I love a bunch of people there. Man, I love so many good people there. But no. And I'm yeah. not going to move there. I like the Bay Area. Bay Area is cool, but I don't want to live in San Francisco. And I can't afford to live in Berkeley. And I can't afford to live in Santa Cruz. That's the other problem. The other problem is Nashville's, we're going through a housing boom here. And our, our house has increased in value. But, I mean, a friend of mine moved from Nashville from L.A. He's a smart, rich dude, you know. And he was like, so how big is your house? I'm like, oh, it's 2,700 square feet. Although it's really 1,700 square feet, but they finished the basement. And so that added another 1,000 square feet to it. And he's like, he's like wow. And I, go, and I have a pool, which you've been to. And he's like, yeah, yeah that's like $1.7 million or in LA. I'm like, yeah. Oh, you know, I paid, oh, yeah, paid 193000 for it. So that means that for me to sell my house, I'll have to go buy basically the exact same house for all that extra money. So, you know, I'm, I just don't see me going anywhere else. You know, and we like our little spot. We're outside of Nashville. The only thing we don't like about it is not a lot of great restaurants, a lot of chains, shit like that. And there's nowhere to walk to anything. Mm. We walk a young snorry dog down here, Rocco, every night. And it's great. It's a mile walk through our neighborhood. And it's great. It's quiet. Yeah. And not a lot of BS going on. There's not a lot of crime. It's, it's nice. All right. Final topic. Atmos, I know that you've you've 
switched over to Atmos. Well, and, I can't uh, say I've switched over to it. I, I have the ability to do it. You, you've implemented it. I have implemented Atmos fully into my rig. I'm staring at the renderer up there. It's staring at my face. Okay. From our conversation the other day, it seems like you're, you're still at the early stages of it. Yeah, we're, I think we're all standing on the banks of the Mississippi looking, at, looking across to the, the Wild West over there. So a few things. A, I'm not doing any remix work. Like, I'm not doing any catalog, catalog remix work. work. I'm not doing yeah. any of that stuff. Yeah. If I was doing that stuff, I'd probably get a lot better at it, to be honest with you. I'm only doing records that I've done. B, a lot of the records I do and have done come from what I, what I would call current low track count. So six or eight tracks of drums, bass, a couple guitar tracks here or there, solos, a piano or a B3, vocals and background vocals. Relatively traditional sort of rock and roll production stuff. I can't get my head around the concept that all that stuff doesn't need to just be in front of me. Mm -hmm. And that the room or a room that we're in or some sort of thing needs to be behind me, right? Where I struggle is that there's a lot of stuff that you listen to on Apple and where playing back in my room where there's, there's whole parts in the rears, there's whole parts in the sides, things going on above that aren't elsewhere. And I can't, for the life of me, make any of that work in any sort of binaural fold-down or anything that I like. So, I just think that I'm stupid with it right now, that I don't exactly know what I'm doing. And to be honest with you, I don't have the time, which sounds like that's everybody's beef, because time is money. I don't have the time or maybe the willpower to just spend a few weeks teaching myself how to be really good at it. Does that mean I think I'm terrible at it? No, it just means I think I'm very, very early learning curve. Yeah. Well, and, and, and you don't seem to have like a, a, a great amount of time or enthusiasm to dive, do a, do a deep dive into it yet. Yeah. I mean, yet. like, it's weird to me because I think that, if I was remixing tracks, especially like pop tracks, I think it'd be a hoot. You can just do whatever, whatever you want. Oh, yeah. And time-based stuff. And I mean, I open ADMs of these, because I have a bunch of ADMs of these, like those Post Malone rec records, which are great. And I just go, oh, that's cool. There's this little bleepy bloop thing going, bloop, 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 bloop. Bloop, bloop, bloop. You know, and I'm going from yeah, I'm going from maybe left to right on your dial, but it's going from front to side to rear, and then crossing over back behind me, and then going you know rear to front to back across to the rear, and that's this whole thing moving around. And then I put the headphones on. And I go, oh yeah, I, yeah. I put my AirPod Pros, and I go, yeah. I don't know that it really. I hear it doing that, but I feel the movement. I sense the motion of it. And that, that makes it very cool. How do I do that if I've got loud fucking rock band guitars? Or let's put it this way: I'm, I'm just not sure that I love the moving target 
that is the format yet because I'm not making, to be honest with you, sample-based pop music and where it shines, in my opinion. I also think it shines really nicely in like really well-recorded jazz and some of Steve mixes of the old stuff, which I would have just been too scared to even go near, are fantastic. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Steve Genoix. Yeah, of course. Are, yeah. Yeah. Steve, yeah. Cool yeah. train. And yeah. 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 I just Absolutely. would be too afraid to even go there. I'd be, you know, I would just be like, thank you. I appreciate the offer. And uh, no. Yeah. And then I would do them anyway. <laughs> that being said, that totally being said, I just, I just got to keep working at it. Yeah. And that's fine. I'm, I'm just curious. Like, do you have hope for the format? Yeah, I do. You yeah. obviously invested. I do. I mean, I I enjoy a challenge. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. I enjoy a challenge. It's a challenge. Mountain biking is a challenge. You know, I enjoy that challenge. I don't do it anymore because I'm old and I've broken multiple things. This is just, it's just something I, I, I need to get better at. Yeah. Shit. Stereo mixing is a fucking challenge. I have friends that say, I'm going to stick with trying to be a better stereo mixer. I'm going to do that too, but I'm going to, I'm going to work on this. Okay. That's about it, dude. I swear I won't wait another 200 episodes to bring you oh, back that's on. Okay. That's fine. For the audience, I'll put links in the show notes to the usual suspects, the Instagrams, the websites, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. The, the GPS website has relatively well updated Spotify link. Yep. Tracks. I'll put a link. If you go to title, you can actually just type my name in to the credit search and it'll, That's pretty it'll cool. show because of course title has better sound and very good credits, unlike Spotify. Oh yeah. That's great. And you're still with Jeremiah over at GPS. Yeah, I am. Fantastic. Jeremiah Colin, the great. I've had a, a couple email exchanges with them just about, you know, getting guests on. Yeah. Yeah, they're great. They seem like great people. Mm -hmm. Well, Vance, thanks so much, man. It's good to see you. And I'm glad that you could come back. And uh, I'll see you again in the future. Hopefully soon. Yeah. A a preemptive happy birthday to you. Thank you. August 17th, everybody. August 17th is Vance Pelday. Monetary gifts are welcome. And uh, (laughs) I'm just kidding. Whatever. All right, dude. Take care. See you, Matt. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Vance Powell. Here on the Working Class Audio Podcast, thank you so much, sincerely, for being here week after week, 450 episodes later. If you like the show, if you like what's happening here, if you like what I've been doing for almost 10 years, it's going to be 10 years next year, head on over to your podcast aggregator, leave a five-star review. If you've got time, you want to write up something nice, do that. Would really appreciate it. It helps out the show tremendously. It lets people know that there's something cool going on here. Yeah. So do that. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. I want to give my deepest thanks to the crew. That includes 
Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale in the Working Class Audio theme song, and the great Chuck Smith there with that lovely voice there at the top of the show. As I always say, connect with me on LinkedIn. Head on over there, do it right now. Send me an email if you have a question, matt at workingclassaudio.com. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.